Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. What you're about to listen to is a live session from ZJLF at the British Library 2019, and it is called Guru Nanak, Traveler, Poet, Philosopher. Navtej Sarna in conversation with Amrit Kaur Lohia. compliments on your singing which has really set the stage uh, for this session because you did sing at least one composition of Guru Nanak and which which sets the whole mood. Uh, I think you you, uh, you started off with a very valid point that it took you to study history formally to realize that the Gurus actually walked this earth and in particular uh, this is a point I usually like to make is about Guru Nanak, I mean, we think in our public sort of, uh, sort of a popular sort of perception that he was there at some ancient time and he was, uh, we must remember, this is the 550th year of his birth. Uh, things that happened in his time are very alive in our memory. Christopher Columbus uh, discovered the new world in his lifetime. Magellan did the first circumnavigation of the earth in his lifetime. The Corpus Christi College at Oxford uh, was founded at that time. If you go further into Europe, Martin Luther was launching the reformation movement at about the same time. And within 50 years of his passing, Shakespeare started writing his plays. So we are not really talking of uh, an ancient uh, in a sage we are talking of somebody who was very recently with us and whose message is still very fresh. So I think this is one thing. Uh, the second point which you mentioned, the historical context, well, it was a pretty tough time in India at that time. The ruling dynasty was that of the Lodis. Uh, and there was uh, both political as well as uh, religious uh, persecution from the ruling classes. Second thing was that people had really lost their spiritual compass. Uh, the entire society was overridden with superstition, with, uh, with blind belief, and there were holy men of all sorts walking around and misleading people and basically feeding on, on, on superstition. Uh, so that was the time, of the late 1500s, uh, 15th century, and when, when Guru Nanak was born. And the other significant thing that happened in his lifetime was the invasion of Babur, mm -hmm. uh, who then founded the Mughal Empire in, in uh, Hindustan. And if there is one thing uh, Guru Nanak's writings don't contain much either at all anything about himself and his own life and his own travels, nor do they contain much about contemporary happenings except the invasion of Babur. And that, if time permits, I, I do have a passage from, from the Babur Vani, which 
uh, I could I could uh, read out. So that was uh, the historical context. In fact, if uh, in his own words he described the times, the spiritual aspect of the times. I've done this little translation of four or five lines where he says, the dark times are like a knife. The kings are butchers. Goodness has taken wings and flown. In the dark night of falsehood, the moon of truth is nowhere to be seen. So this was the time uh, when, when Guru Nanak was born. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the sources before we go into yeah. Ranayad Devji as a traveler, poet, philosopher. So there's a whole introduction in your book where you outline the different Janamsakis um, and how you interwove them with the logic of the traveler, for example. Yeah, see, one of, the, uh, one of the reasons why I said, you know, that we have this popular perception that uh, Guru Nanak was in the dark, in the old hoary past, is for lack of information or precise historical detail about his own life because he never wrote about it himself because he did not see that as his role he saw his role as a uh, as a divine messenger uh, and he says that you know as I get the word I transmit it to you so uh, in that sense he saw himself only as a messenger and so he you know to talk about himself and his details would have been against his message. Uh, secondly, uh, what we do know is from a set of Janamsakis or hagiographies, anecdotal narratives, which came out of oral tradition. And, and they were written some few decades, 40, 50, 60, 70 years after his passing. Uh, not too long, not too long after, but they have been, they are not so much historical narratives, but narratives about the different experiences, stories which came down the generations. These have then been imbued with a certain amount of piety, faith, exaggeration, uh, miracles, and, and sort of evolved. And, and you know, you, you would have heard it, a lot of Sikh children hear these stories at their grandmother's knee. In, certainly in my generation. And uh, so these, these, these Janamsakis are, there are at least, there are at least four different uh, schools of these uh, Janamsakis. And some are considered more authentic than the others. There are contradictions in them. Uh, so it is, it is difficult to reconcile them. So what I did when I was uh, trying to find a middle path for this book, was to say that this is all we have. So rather, uh, rather than go for the actual things that they spoke about, I decided to test them against his message. And each of ones which I thought portrayed certain part of his message, I, I have just included those in the books. Some of them are very fantastic, which I left out, which says, for instance, that he, he traveled to the West when he went to Mecca, Medina, that he traveled on the back of a very large fish. Uh, now, this is clearly, you know, not, this has been sort of brought in by the generations, etc. So, those had to be left out. But I think there are enough which tell us that this was his message, and they are not that 
far away from his, from his time on Earth. Uh, to be completely out of sync. Mm -hmm. So I think that you are, they have to be read with a certain balance. They have to be read with knowing that these were written by believers. So there is a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a blind faith that, that has come in by, by that time. The third source, which is very important, is by the uh, uh, poet of, of, of the Sikh gurus who saw several gurus, uh, Pai Gurdas. He was the nephew of the third guru, Guru Amar Das, and he actually sat by Guru Arjan when he first put together the Granth. And he was the scribe, he was the poet, uh, and he has written in his vars uh, references to Guru Nanak's travels. For instance, he refers, uh, and I can come to that when we do uh, go into the travels, he refers to his travel to Baghdad. He, he, he refers to his travels uh, to, to Mount Sumer. So those, those things then are, are, are very believable and absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, so when, when you actually sit down to write a book about Guru Nanak's travels, you have to take all this and then use your judgment and hope that you are somewhere near right. right. Uh, for instance, his travels, I mean, people have taken this set of uh, Janam Sakis and where the places that are mentioned, then put them together with the popular roots which were prevailing at that time and actually drawn atlases. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go into the British Library and find an atlas which will tell you this is where Guru Nanak traveled with the itinerary and a map. Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't bet on that, uh, but I would certainly say that they give you a broad indication. Mm -hmm. For instance, there are his direction of travel, this one set of Janam Sakis says he made four journeys, four long journeys. One set says two journeys. And there's no particular order in which all this falls through. So uh, I would suggest when you read this book or you read other books, uh, please keep this sort of uh, internal discrimination in mind right. uh, when you approach the subject. But all this does not matter. The point is that all this detail or inaccuracy of detail does not matter because what he has left for us is his own writing. Right. And that's what matters. There are nearly a thousand hymns uh, in, in the uh, verses, uh, hymn verses in, in the Granth Sahib written by Guru Nanak. And that is evidence enough of his message, of the relevance of his message, of the utter simplicity of his message. Uh, and the applicability of his message uh, across uh, uh, all, all human beings. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really relevant what you say because as a musician and as a historian as well, I'm constantly trying to strike the balance between what is historically accurate and what can I rationalize and what can I scientifically, scientifically confirm. But um, also knowing as a musician and as a singer that there are some things that are that can't be rationalized and we intellectualize a lot of things that aren't supposed to be intellectualized. Um, that leads me on to talking about the travels because mm. you've traveled extensively and I really found it interesting when you talked about the logic of the traveler of the time as well. Um, would you be able to guide us briefly about Yeah, I, I, I keep referring to my notes when we go to the travels because uh, it's, it's believed that, you see, after Guru Nanak got the enlightenment, and I'm sure many in the audience know how he got the enlightenment. He had gone away to live with his uh, sister in Sultanpur. 
and uh, he had this uh, a rigorous discipline of getting up very early morning, meditating, and then bathing in the river Bain, uh, which flows there. And one day, uh, he went in to bathe in the river and did not come out. And for three days and three nights, uh, he had vanished. And uh, people found his clothes uh, on the river bank, and uh, people thought that, okay, he's lost. He's gone into the river. And, and then he appears after three days, and he's totally silent. And uh, then when he's pushed to speak, he just says one line, and he says, there is no Hindu and there is no Muslim. And that is his uh, enlightenment. Uh, of course, that is the, the, the belief is that it's that time when he actually communes uh, with the Creator and, and comes back with this understanding of the equality of man. And uh, thereafter, he decides that he needs to walk away, spread the word through his travels, uh, to dispel ignorance, to debate with other uh, with religious leaders of different faiths and to see where commonalities are and where differences are and how they can be reconciled. So he sets off and he travels for, uh, I mean, figures vary, but anything from 20 to 25 years uh, in, let us say, four long journeys. Now, these were really odysseys because they were for years attend. In those days, there was no fast travel. He traveled on foot and uh, I'd like to think that the Odyssey takes us to what the word used in Punjabi is, which is Udasi, but there is no connection to that. Uh, Udasi is actually uh, detachment. So this, these are journeys of detachment, when he just leaves everything uh, and, and, and he travels. And during these four journeys, he travels uh, west, uh, east, all the way to Assam. He travels south all the way to modern-day Sri Lanka. He travels north into Tibet, Ladakh, uh, up, up into the snowy heights, and up till Mount Sumer, which is the, believed to be Mount Kailash, uh, the home of uh, Shiv and Parvati. And then he travels west all the way to uh, Mecca, Medina, and Baghdad on the way. Uh, there, there are uh, accounts of belief that he, uh, some accounts put his western border even further. They say he went to Turkey, Palestine, uh, he went to, um, uh, to uh, Syria. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know, I've not seen anything very authentic about that. Uh, just to mention that on, 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 in, in Turkey at one stage, people that started writing about uh, prescription on, on inscription on top of a gate next to the Bosphorus, which, which looks like there's Nanak written there, but it's actually Khanak, uh, which I presume means a small Khan. But uh, that, that, that is, so it's, that's been discounted. Uh, there is an Indian hospice uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and I've written about that, uh, which where Baba Farid meditated. So it's a fair guess to say that since Guru Nanak knew about Baba Farid and Farid's uh, uh, verses are included in the Granth Sahib, that if he did ever go to Jerusalem, that's probably where, where he went. A lot of holy men from different faiths uh, used to go to Jerusalem in, in those centuries. And 
so this was the travel he traveled with Mardana, who played the Rabab, uh, and that is something which you should talk about. And uh, he, uh, Mardana was his Rababi who used to accompany him whenever the word came to him, and 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 he would sing. You know, what I find interesting is that in all the Janamsakis, the inciting incident in all of them is that Mardana is always hungry or thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, did Gurunanak not eat? <laughs> um, so I just find it interesting that this is that pattern that he's just always hungry. Yeah. Well, it is true, you know, that, that sort of gives some, uh, many stories, uh, their real punch, uh, uh, and, and, you know, you remember that. Of course, there's also accounts, and don't ask me from where these have come, because, uh, but I found these in old history books and, and in old paintings and drawings of how Guru Nanak dressed uh, when, when he traveled. Uh, I think this is, this, this is a, just a uh, thing of him leaving the house. <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, uh, leaving his family and going off on his uh, uh, spiritual journey. And these are different scenes from different stories. I won't go into this, but I'll just keep, let's say this one, for instance, is a very interesting Janam Sakhi, just to show how he was transmitting his message. He traveled to the spiritual center of Hardwar, where uh, people go to bathe in the holy Ganga River. And, and he found the pilgrims standing in the water and, and throwing water towards the rising sun, uh, as they do in the mornings. So he went into the water and started throwing water in the other direction, towards the west. And then the pilgrims turned around and said, well, you know, what sort of a uh, man are you? I mean, you don't know what we are doing and why are you doing uh, this? He says, why are you throwing this water? They said, we are throwing it to the, so that us, the souls of our ancestors get water. So he says, well, then I'm throwing it to my fields uh, in the West because there's nobody there to give water to them. So they say, you must be mad. He said, well, if your ancestors can get this water, surely my, uh, my, my fields can. So this is, this is that... Uh, that little legend of uh, uh, of, of Nanak uh, in, in, in Hardwar. And, and he used to dress, it is said, like a Muslim dervish. He, he wore a brown choga, a robe sort of thing, but, but it was in the rust saffron color of, of, the, of the Hindu sadhus. And he wore a white cloth belt like a fakir. When he traveled to Mecca, Medina, he dressed like a haji. He wore a blue, uh, blue robe. He used to often wear sandals. Uh, each sandal uh, was, was, of a, was of a different color. And it is said he sometimes wore a, uh, a necklace of bones, uh, human bones, uh, to show the utter mortality of, of all human beings and human aspirations. What kind of sources um, are those kinds? Well, I told you don't ask me, but you've asked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I, I am not the kind of person who can go into the deep down scholarly resources, but this is mentioned in, in famous histories like Hariram Gupta and others. And if you see the old paintings, for instance, the kind which William Dalrymple uh, uh, talks about and collects, I'm sure that... There are old, old pictures of Guru Nanak which show him in these dresses. And there, there are old paintings and, and, uh, 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 which, which certainly show him in the Fakir's dresses. He, when he traveled to the north in the, the snowy mountains, it is said he wore leather uh, in terms of a leather uh, on his scarves, on his leather 
turban or cap or whatever you call it, and rope uh, to cover himself uh, against, the, against the cold. So these were just the fact that he was just a wandering uh, dervish uh, in, in those. He slept where he could, he ate what he got, uh, and his entire thing was, was to pass the message. I think so, it's um, interesting that it, even in art depictions, he always has like a halo around him, and we're used to the famous images, like especially growing up in a Sikh household. But when you actually look at his travels and you humanize him a little bit, there's this famous poem on YouTube. Um, I've forgotten the name of the poet now, but um, he basically describes what Guru Nanak's hands and his feet must have looked like from traveling so much. And we kind of almost have him with like blush on in, in the paintings. But really, when you and when you think about how much he traveled, he must have been a worn, torn guy, you know. But you know, he has, for instance, many of the Gurdwaras which mark his travels, like the one in Kathmandu, which I've seen personally, and there are several others, have marks of his feet in terms of it and, his, uh, and impressions of his wooden sandals. So, uh, so it's a question of local legend, some signs of his having been there, and the Janamsakis. Uh, which you combine. Uh, we mentioned one. I'd like to go to one more. This is very interesting. It's my favorite. This is uh, when he travels east. And, and, and uh, he, he, uh, he goes to the Jagannath Temple of Puri. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to the Jagannath Temple, but the Jagannath Temple is a huge temple, and they have this annual ceremony of the god being brought out and pulled on a chariot, and people fight with each other to pull the chariot, and the huge crowd takes, and this is what gave the English language the word Jagannath, uh, from, from the Jagannath temple. And they, he went and sat with Mardana, and there are different accounts of this, where he went and sat with Mardana outside, and they would start, they, they would sing their uh, Shabbats, and uh, so the priests were, somewhat disturbed by this, and they came to him and said, no, why don't you come and see our, what we do in the temple? So he went there, and he, there was this beautiful ceremony of the Arti, in which they have these golden uh, salvers, they put the lamps, they put flowers, they put incense, and the, there's a blowing of the conches, and the uh, thal is moved in front of the god, and this is the Arti, and he was completely unmoved by it. So when they asked him, you know, what's wrong? You... So he said, then he sang this uh, song, and this, uh, which, which he then says that what is the true arti, what is the true worship of, of the creator, and this painting sort of depicts it, and this is today in the Granth Sahib, the arti which, you know, is sung every day. It says, the sky, the salver, the sun and moon, the lamps, the stars studying the heavens are the pearls. The fragrance of sandal is the incense, fanned by the winds, all for thee. The great forests are the flowers. What a beautiful arti is being performed for you, O destroyer of fear. So he says the arti is going on in, of creation. There are forests, there are flowers, the sun, moon, uh, the winds are performing the arti, and that is, is the true worship. So this is the painting. Uh, a drawing that uh, that that depicts uh, uh, that story. So this is again something which he, uh, you know, when he went east. Should we carry on about the travels? Yep. 
Well, the other great one is this one, which you see on top of him talking to a lot of old sages in the mountains. So this is when he traveled to Mount Kailash or Mount, Mount Sumer. And legend has traced his steps to modern-day Himachal, Jammu and Kashmir, Uttar Pradesh, Sikkim, Ladakh, even Nepal and Tibet. For instance, if you've been to Ladakh, you see the Gurdwara Pathar Sahib, which has an impression in the rock of his back. And if you go to uh, Nepal, on the hill, there is a Gurdwara which is sandals. And in Bhutan, uh, the Bhutanese actually call him Lama Nanak. He's, and they come to Revalsar, which is also a Sikh uh, Gurdwara. Uh, the Bhutanese have a pilgrimage uh, to Revalsar, and they, the Tibetans, they call, it, uh, call him Lama Nanak. So there's a certain universality about it. So when he went there, and this has been recorded by Bhai Gurdas, so this is not uh, fantasy. He went to Mount Kailash, and there on Mount Kailash, he had this discussion with 84 Siddhas. Siddhas are these people who have run away from the world and sat there and meditated there for decades and acquired great spiritual power and, and wisdom. And among them are supposed to be the ancients like Goraknath, Machendranath, who were the big leaders of, the, uh, of, of that kind of uh, belief in those days. And then in Bhai Gurdas's version, I'm going to read out the dialogue as translated. So in Bhai Gurdas's version of the meetings, the Siddhas express amazement at seeing Nanak. O youthful one, they call him, what power brings you to these heights? Who is that you worship? And Guru Nanak replies, the eternal Lord alone. And then the Siddhas ask him, how the world below is faring. So Guru Nanak made no secret of what he felt. He told them that darkness, sin and injustice had taken over the world. Corruption was rampant. The fence itself had begun to eat the crop. The wise Siddhas had escaped into the remote caves and mountains. Who would then redeem the world? And it's, it's right, Siddh Chape Bethe Parbati Kono Jagat Ko Paar Utara. There's nobody wise enough left uh, to save the world because all of you have run away and come here. The Siddhas then argued that it is not possible to be part of the world and follow the path of meditation and spirituality. Nanak replied that one had to be as a lotus in the water that remains dry or the duck that stays dry even as it goes against the current. One had to be part of the world and yet to be unaffected by it through meditation on his name. So this is that depiction of, of that dialogue. It's a very long description. I've only given uh, you the essence of it. But it's recorded both in uh, Rag Ramkali in, in the Granth Sahib and it is recorded in Bhai Gurdas's uh, own, own bar. I think that's what really fascinates me about his writing is that... Um, especially growing up in the Janamsakis, it felt like it was just Guru Nanak going out and disseminating his enlightenment. But actually, there must have been an exchange of values, Correct. an exchange of um, knowledge and wisdom. Oh, absolutely. You see, the essence of uh, what he wanted to do was to, uh, was, was to have exchange, was an honest debate 
uh, with Sufis, uh, with, with others. Of course, the Mecca Medina story is very well known, so I, I don't need to go into that. But I. Maybe, I, maybe could for the people that haven't. Well, 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 the fact is that he traveled as a Haji to Mecca Medina, and the uh, Janam Sakis have it that he, 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 he lay down and was resting. And somebody, one of the Malvis came and objected and they said, are you mad? What kind of a person are you? Your feet are facing the Kaaba. And this is uh, disrespect. That's the house of God. So he said, okay, why don't you pick up my feet and turn them in the direction where there is no God? And that, that, that was the, uh, the essence of the argument that if God is all pervasive, then you can't say he's there and he's not there. So, you know, so when he was, but the, a very interesting debate happened in Baghdad. And this is a depiction of Nanak reaching Baghdad. And this again is mentioned by Bhai Gurdas. Uh, he says, Phir Baba Gaya Baghdad ko bahari kia asthana, ik Baba akal roop, duja rababi mardana. So he says the Bhai. Uh, Baba Nanak went to Baghdad, sat outside. It is said he sat in a graveyard. And he started uh, reciting. And Mardana started playing the Rabab. Uh, and people began to gather. And somebody went and complained to the big peer, the Pire Dastagir of, of Baghdad, and said, This something very un Islamic is happening out here. And, you know, this, I don't know where this man has come from. So the Pire Dastgir is said to have gone, come out of the city and met him. And he asked him, accord, again, according to Pai Gurdas. So this is recorded. Puchya Pirke Dastgir, Kon Fakir Kiska Gharyana. He asked him, who, who are you and who is your guru? So who are you a believer of? And who's, you know, Pires also like, like singers, are sort of divided into houses and, you know, they're... Uh... So Mardana replied for Guru Nanak, Nanak kalvich aya, rab fakir ikko pehchana, dhart akash chahu dis jana. Means Nanak has come to this world in Kalyug. He has rejected all fakirs except the supreme being who is all pervasive in the heavens, the earth, and all four directions. So the Pira Dastagir was very impressed. He took Guru Nanak and they had long discussions. And he met another Pira called Bahalol of, of uh, Baghdad and had several discourses with him. Bahalol then invited him to stay for four months in Baghdad. And he stayed there. And there is a Gurdwara in Baghdad uh, and an inscription which was discovered by a Sikh soldier in during the First uh, World War, uh, which shows that Guru Nanak actually went there. And this, this is recorded by none other than a very highly poetic Swami, a Hindu Swami, Swami Anandacharya, who was an itinerant uh, Hindu monk who wrote it after visiting this place of the meeting. And it, he wrote it in English, so I don't have to give you a translation. He writes, what peace from Himalaya's lonely caves and forests thou didst carry to the vine groves and rose gardens of Baghdad. 
What light from Badrinath's snowy peak thou didst bear to illumine the heart of Bailol, thy saintly Persian disciple? Eight fortnights Bailol hearkened to thy words on life and the path and spring eternal, while the moon waxed and waned in the pomegranate grove beside the grassy desert of the dead. It's a beautiful poem. Which he, which he has written to describe Behlol and Guru Nanak's meeting as this poem itself is about 120, 130 years old. So this was you know, from his Western journey. Yeah, so I was just going to say, talking about poets, like Guru Nanak was a poet in his own right and a master of rhyme and, and meter. Uh, I always like to think about his process and what it must have been like when he was writing these exquisite, perfect um, rhymes. Um, but he did write in a very simplistic way as well, his language, surely from his travels. Well, well you see, his, 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 he, his attack was not on any religion, it was on orthodoxy. Mm. Orthodoxy in any religion was something which he, he discounted because, because it led to priesthood and it led to blind belief. And it led to exploitation. So his language also was, he did not write in Sanskrit. Because if you had the Sanskrit, uh, then, then you needed somebody to understand it and tell you this is it. So that became priesthood. So he wrote in the common language of the day. He wrote in Gurmukhi, he wrote in Sadhukari, he wrote in... So there, there, are, there are words which are from Persian, from Arabic... Which, which, which were prevalent in the Punjab uh, of, of those days. So the entire thing was that this religion is something which is of this world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, if we bring in his teachings, there's a tremendous element of affirmation that this is God's creation. This is beyond human uh, possibilities to create or even to understand. Yeah. So let us just take it as real. Yeah. So, the affirmation of the world that everything is here and now. It's not by running away. There's this uh, story that um, really amazingly explains religion, and I would like to share it. Apparently, it was a story that begins with God and the devil walking along the street, and um, God saw something amazing and glowing on the floor in a spherical kind of um, form, and he picks it up, and the and the devil said, what is that? And God said, um, this is the truth. And the devil said, hang on a second, let me take that, let me organize that for you. So for me, it's just a really great way of thinking about religion and what, it, and what it's done even to Granada's message. Yeah, it's so such a universal message. But what I wanted to develop on what you were talking about was the context of the time that Granada is writing in. So there was this poet, poetic movement going across, across South Asia um, called the Bhakti Movement. Mm. And um, what was fascinating to me when I started learning this and what helped me humanize Gunanak's stories and his music and his writing was that there were many women involved in this po writing this poetry. And it was almost this iconoclastic poetry where women were kind of denouncing marriage and rituals. It's almost like a very early... like pro I don't know, I haven't studied a feminism before the 14th century kind of movement of Bhakti poetry. But... Um, in, and they graphically and quite explicitly describe why they're denouncing marriage, why they're denouncing um, being 
um, bound to societal expectations. And Mirabai is probably one of the most well-known ones. And um, uh, Bhagat Kabir and Namdev and, and Grunand also fall into that form of writing poetry where you're um, almost writing from a woman's perspective as well. There are so many, um, so many pieces of scripture in, in the Siddhi Guru Granth Sahib and the Sikh scripture that is written from a woman's perspective. But that is, a, that is again from the Bhakti as well as the Sufis of, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the worshipper being in the form of a woman waiting for her beloved, beloved being, being God. So uh, again, I think the Shabbat that you sang uh, this morning yeah. is also from a feminine uh, uh, point of view. So that certainly is there. But a, the, the uh, essence is that this should be something which was understood by the farmer, by the ordinary uneducated man, and without the intervention of the priest. Mm -hmm. So I think this is what, what ultimately led to the democratization uh, of, of religion, so to speak. And it also brought in uh, everything into the home. So if you wanted the Dharamsal, for instance, which was the precursor of the Gurdwara, which was just a place of worship, uh, it said, again, it is said that Ghargar under Dharamsal means every house has become a Dharamsal because religion has been returned to the people away, away, from, away from the priests. Right. So I think even the writing... Was, was with that uh, objective. Right. Do you want me to read the Babarwani? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the Babarwani is written uh, when Babar, he, Guru Nanak is a witness uh, to Babar's invasion and savagery. So this is one verse. Uh, it is a Guru Nanak's uh, Babarwani I've written here is the composition of protest at the invasion of Babar and the suffering inflicted on innocent citizens particularly the women folk. In four Shabads, three of which are said to Rag Asa and the fourth to Rag Tilang, Nanak pours forth the reaction of not just an eyewitness, but also of a philosophical sage, a visionary and a poet. He says, As God wor God's word comes to me, so I speak, O Lalo. He, Babar, has charged from Kabul, with a wedding party of sin and demands gifts by force, O Lalo. Modesty and righteousness are in hiding. Falsehood is in command, O Lalo. The Kazis and Brahmins have had their day. Satan reads the marriage vows, O Lalo. Muslim women read the Quran in suffering, call on God, O Lalo. And Hindu women of caste high and low Suffer the same fate, O Lalo. O Nanak, pains of blood are sung, and anointment is not by saffron, but blood, O Lalo. Nanak sings the virtues of the Lord in the city of corpses and utters this truth. The one who created men and gave them joys beholds them in his solitude. He is true, true is his verdict, and true his justice. So this is what he writes, and then he describes what's happening to the women. And this is really beautiful. It says, They with the beautiful tresses, sacred vermilion in their partings, their heads are now shorn with scissors, and dust chokes their throats. They who lived in palaces no longer can even sit outside. 
Praise to thee, O Lord. Praise, O primal Lord. None knows your limits. Endlessly you behold yourself in diverse forms. When they were married, their bridegrooms handsome beside them, they came seated in palanquins and adorned in ornaments of ivory. Welcoming waters greeted them and glittering fans comforted them from clothes. Riches were gifted as they sat and riches when they stood. They ate coconuts and dates and took pleasure on comfortable beds. Ropes now are under their necks. Their pearl strings are broken. The wealth and youthful beauty that gave them joy are now their enemy. The soldiers have been ordered and dishonoring them, they take them away. Thank you for sharing that. So we know from Gurunadev's writings and his stories and his life that he believed in equality and it, at its heart it was that that was the message. Um, I want to ask you, and I'm going to be brave enough to ask you, knowing that you're a diplomat and you'll find your way around this as well. So um, I always like to describe um, Gurunadev Ji's kind of life as something that he, and here I'm talking about the relevance of his message and how universal the message was, that he kind of began a social reform movement um, without this kind of idea of, in, of institutionalizing it and reforming, um, uh, institutionalizing the religion and turning it into what it's almost become. Um, but he almost knew that he was turning this into something that was going to pass through the ages because he did look for a successor and he wanted to make sure that this continued. Um, I want to ask you, what would Gurunadevji's politics look like? You know, if he's, if he's talking about Barbara and that he must have had an alternative worldview and what does that worldview, what can we learn from that? I think his worldview was very simple. It was essentially for the equality of man. It was for a affirmation of this world. And it was that how do you ameliorate uh, human suffering in this world through your own work, your, your service. Uh, so when he settled down after his travels at Kartarpur, you've heard a lot about Kartarpur in the India-Pakistan context uh, recently. Uh, he settled down at Kartarpur and gave practical form to his message. Mm -hmm. So he started, a community gathered around him, and this was not a community of, not a monastic order. It was a community of ordinary people, farmers, carpenters, Hindus, Muslims, uh, people who had believed in other things but found this message very appealing. And he said, okay, he worked on a farm, uh, he tilled the land, and he lived the life of a householder. So he said, the best way we can do, and the message he gave was, kirt karo, means work hard, naam japo, meditate on his name, and vanchako, which is share in charity. So this very three-pronged three sort of simple uh, uh, principle of service and charity and, and meditation. And, and there he also started certain institutions which, as you later say, got more institutionalized. Uh, it's called the Pangat and Sangat. So Sangat is basically sitting together in a community and listening to the name of God, whether they're singing it or they are talking about it or meditating it. So it had a social purpose also. In a caste-ridden society uh, of, of the 16th century, this was uh, impossible that everybody rich, poor, um, Brahmin and others were sitting together 
uh, on this on the same thing in the meditation of the same creator so it had a communal a social message and it started this community of believers and the other was the pangat which is the line so you know when you have the langar in the indian gurdwara everybody goes and sits on the ground in the line and eats the same food so this is where the, that tradition started that if you can eat together i mean today it might seem very straightforward perhaps not even today that we can all eat together the same things and i will not eat and you will not eat this and i will not eat this but it was the same food is being served and everybody is eating it irrespective of social status or caste or or power uh, that you may have in the earthly world so that again was a democratization and a, which later you know by the time of the 10th guru uh, became uh, institutionalized and and you know you see it in practice uh, today today in the world but that is where the foundations of this uh, brotherhood of man if you can call it that uh, is what was being created essentially the brotherhood of man so that was his world view yeah i really um like talking about the music aspect before mm, please as well um i i love the fact that not only did gurudev write poetry um and the gurus afterwards but they did put it to a musical format and i wanted to also talk to you about this and not just me talking how many rugs in the grand sir actually it's debated so i'm not going to go into that debate because it depends on how you count it and what rugs count and um but for me it's not about how many rugs there are in the guru granth sahib it's the fact that there are rugs in the guru granth sahib and that the music it, the poetry is set to um the poetry is set to music and i think it's really special that as a musician i can take that out of the context of the protocol of the gurudwara and the sacred spaces that we have created and put it into um the other things that we do in life as well and i think that's what i like to talk to the youth about i do loads of youth work and and it's it's how universal the message is that we can um take gurunanak's message of just being able to sing it doesn't matter like throughout time we've had uh, we've commodified music and musicians and we've kind of put them on the stage and we now like pay to listen to them i mean you should pay musicians if you're hiring musicians <laughs> we should be respecting artists but what i mean by that is that it's almost taken away agency from audiences audiences become more and more passive when we kind of let musicians do the singing and the playing the music but grunanic essentially and the gurus afterwards what they were essentially advocating was that everyone can sing we can all sit together and sing and meditate and um share the same message as well um another thing i think is really powerful from just reading what you've written as well is that is the kind of simple lessons that we can take away and gurunanak traveled and i've you know met many people not just youth but people that have never even traveled outside of london and it, i almost imagine a world where gurunanak decided to be enlightened and just kind of stayed put and where he you know and just didn't travel or exchange and learn but there's so much we can learn from just his life and how he moved is that we must travel we must exchange ideas we must have discussions we must have debates um especially in such a divided world now that we kind of we're kind of stuck to our our belief systems and we don't want to look the other way i think there's a lot to learn from just the life he led about going out there exposing your ideas and take and listening as well i'm sure he listened to ideas and 
and created art from it, essentially. You know, we see Grunanik in the context of religion, but he was an artist and a poet and, and a singer and a, and a musician. Um, I think it's amazing when I humanize him in my own kind of head that, like, what it must have taken for him to go, okay, I'm enlightened. I mean, I probably didn't say that about himself, but, you know, and went out and traveled and decided to take a musician along with him, decided to disseminate his message through the universal form of music. So I think it's a really inspiring life to, to take a lot away from, and we should be looking to these figures more and more, you know, as well as historical figures, but I think people are really scared of the kind of religious label and, you know, how extremist it is and every, all the labels attached to that. But that's kind of what I gathered from just reading what you've written. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you.